Thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. If you open up your bulletins and you see the outline, it is uh, aggressive and ambitious. Um, <laughs> and we got to get through a lot. And so what we're doing is we wanted to pause. We wanted to do this last week. We had some things going on at the end of the service, which we do have again this week. We were able just to arrange things a little bit differently. So we're going to be able to do the review of Mark as we head back in. We don't foresee too many more breaks coming. So we wanted to kind of catch us all back up with where we've been and then just get on a path of moving forward through the gospel of Mark. And so uh, without delaying any further, I'm just going to jump right into it. Um, I take that back. I'm going to explain the outline to you real quick. You'll notice that it starts just with, you know, John the Baptist in chapter one. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to take a few minutes. I'm going to explain who wrote it again. I'm going to talk about some of those things. And then I'll say, hey, take out your outlines. And then we're literally going to go through that bit by bit, piece by piece, and make our way to the end of the service. Okay. So the gospel of Mark was written by John Mark. We kind of remember him from the book of Acts being one of uh, uh, Paul's, uh, member of Paul's missionary party and the first missionary journey he set out on. Uh, he, at some moment while he was with Paul, deserted Paul. And then when it came time for the second missionary journey, Paul said, no, man, you're a deserter. You, you failed us. You, you, you left the journey. You left me to fend for myself and cause hardship for me. Barnabas is like, man, give the guy another chance. Turns out that John Mark is Barnabas's cousin. And uh, Barnabas is like, man, let, we need him to have another chance. It's okay. He failed, but we can, you know, we can, can be restored. And, and Paul said, he's not coming with us. We're going to be on our way. And Barnabas said that I'm not going with you. There was a, a faction, some sort of a split between the two of them. And they went on separate missionary journeys. We see uh, John Mark's family introduced in Acts 12 after Peter was put in prison and released. And it says this in Acts 12, 12. When he had uh, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. So it appears that John Mark's house was the gathering place for the first church, the gathering place for the early Christian church. It's the place where they would gather and pray, gather and hear the word, gather and see everything that we see unpacked in Acts chapter 2 as it talks about what's happening in the homes uh, as, uh, as the, uh, the church is kind of coming alive and coming into its own. So it also means that he comes from some sort of position of influence or financial um, wealth, some sort, because he has a house big enough, his family has a house big enough that the, uh, the believers can meet in there. And then we're told this, that at some point, there's a restoration. At some point, he's restored back to a relationship with Paul. At some point, he's, uh, well, let me just share, right? So he becomes, Paul calls him a dear fellow worker. And he says, uh, he says that, go get him quick and bring him to me, for he has been, become a fellow worker and a source of encouragement. Man, God transforms people, doesn't he? And, th and then we find that he becomes Peter's, uh, call, Peter begins to call him son, his spiritual son, right? Son in their faith. And uh, can we turn these lights up just a little bit? Thanks, Kevin. His spiritual son. And so there's this real close relationship that's beginning to happen between him and Peter. And what we now know or what we understand is that basically uh, he became a scribe, an interpreter or something for Peter. And that everything that we have in the gospel of Mark is written down from what he knows from, from Peter and his time with Peter. 
And so he was not an apostle. He was not one of the disciples. We don't know how much close proximity he had with Jesus during Jesus' time as he walked and did his ministry. He could have been on the outskirts of all of that. He could have been closer in. Remember, we often talk about the 12 disciples, but there were many hundreds of others that would have called themselves disciples. And maybe he was part of that crowd and literally walked wherever Jesus walked. We don't really know. We just know that he became very close with Peter. He traveled with Peter, was an interpreter for Peter, and took careful uh, witness and skill to record what Peter had said in his preaching and his teaching and his evangelism. One of the first church history fathers, or fathers of church history said that while the order is not correct in the way it happened, for that was not Mark's goal to put it in order, the accounts and the events are accurate and fully true. So we can take great confidence in that. There has never been a, a discussion. There's never been an upheaval, if you will, or a conflict within the church from the very beginning about this being one of the Gospels and have apostolic authority because of the relationship with Peter. What does this say to us? What does it say to us that, that he was brought back together in relationship with Paul, that he was used by Peter, who knew failure quite well himself, and then obviously helped another to heal and restore from failure and brought him back to a place of, that he would have an influence? What does it say that he authored the most, one of the most translated books, the most translated gospel of all the gospels that we have? What does it say that his influence on the Christian world and the world as a whole has been here for 2,000 years. It says that God is in the business of restoration. It says that we're never checkmarked in the economy of God. We may fail, we may fall, we may fall dead smack on our face. Do not checkmate yourself and do not look away from the Lord our God. He will restore. He has plans for you that are just now unfolding. He has plans for you you can never fully comprehend or understand. He has plans to use you in people's lives that you have no idea what. Could Mark have truly known that we would be sitting here studying his words in his book today, 2,000 years later, and we're going to draw closer to our Savior because of what he went through, what he wrote down, and because he was restored. He couldn't have known that. But because he allowed himself to be restored by the master of restoration, his life has still had impact. But it says something even more. Don't checkmate your brother or sister in Christ because they have fallen. Don't checkmate somebody else because in God's economy, it doesn't belong there. Be a tool, a vessel, an instrument for restoration, just as Peter must have been. Unite people and help restore relationships. Bring unity before people and between people. Help bring people into the presence of Christ who have lost their way and wandered, who think that I can't be used for anything else. Be the tool and the instrument of restoration in people's lives because you believe in what God can do through them. Allow yourself to be used in powerful ways in the people around you. Let's look at the uniqueness of the book of Mark. It was written to the believers of Rome, the Gentile believers of Rome. As such, it leaves out many of the um, the discourses that are in some of the other Gospels that deal with the Old Testament or deal with Jesus' teaching about the, the law or his teaching about um, some, of the, uh, 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 some of the banquets or some of the customs, it leaves out many of those things because that would not have been important to Gentile believers in Rome. 
What it does is it absolutely magnifies and focuses on the Lord's deity, his authority, his power, him being God, right? And why was that so important? Because he's talking to a people that weren't waiting for a Messiah. They weren't waiting for a Savior. He's talking to a people who worshiped a a, a Caesar, a, a Roman leader, as if he was God and had power talking to him who had many demagogues and all sorts of other created gods that they made up. And he's saying, hey, let me put on display for you the God. Let me show you his power. Let me show you his authority. Let me show you his authority in teaching. And let me show you his authority over the elements of of nature and physics. And let me show you his authority over people's sin that even Caesar can't forgive that. Let me show you his authority over people's health and those that are blind. What can Caesar do to that? And let me show you the authority he has over healing someone. And finally, let me show you his authority over life and death. While Caesar can bring death, he cannot bring life. And our God is the God of life and he is Jesus Christ. And so what does he do? He unpacks the deity through the works and the teaching, meaning the power and the authority of his teaching, not in his knowledge of of the the Old Testament or the, the ancient scripts of Israel, okay? He brings it about in his works and his teaching in terms of the power of his teaching. Then that's chapters 1 through 10, really, and then chapters 10 through uh, 16 really deal with the death and then obviously the resurrection of Jesus. Why is that so powerful? What's Caesar up to? Right? What are, what are the gods of, of Rome up to? Saving their own tail? Doing what they want to do? Building their own empire? Making things great for themselves? And here we have God who came with all authority, all power, could control anything, all creation. And yet he surrenders himself, he submits himself to the death on a cross through the brutal beating that any moment he could have held up his hand without saying a word and it all would have stopped. Everyone would have dropped and began to worship. With just his very word, everything would have come to a halt. He could have saved his tail and walked away. And instead, what does he do? He is the servant king. He willingly surrenders his life, not for himself, because he's about to lose it. For the first time in all eternity, he will be separated from the Father and the triune Godhead. For what reason? To save each one of us. So he spends an incredible amount of time showing the death, the resurrection, for the purpose of paying our sins and drawing us into a relationship that instantly for all those who say yes to Jesus become part of the greatest kingdom that there ever is, will be, or ever was, the kingdom of God. That would mean something to a Roman believer, yes? That's why he writes the way he does. He also writes very quickly. He uses the word immediate more than 42 times, immediately. It's used more in this one book than it is in any other part of the New Testament. Why? Even the whole New Testament combined. Why? Because the Romans are about action. They're about getting it done. They're about advancing it. They're about being the tough guy on the block. And he goes, let me show you somebody who's about action. Let me show you somebody who's not wallowing around and waiting for something else to happen. He's making it happen. He's bringing life to each one of us. And that's the place we get to sit in. All right. Pull out your outlines. (laughs) And we're headed for a journey. 
Okay, let's review where we've been. All right. So in chapter one, we find that John the Baptist shows up after 400 years, the prophet of, of silence. He shows up as the prophet who uh, introduces Jesus Christ, right? He introduces Jesus Christ and says, hey, there's one that's coming after me. Mark 1, 7 through 8 says, and this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He shows up on the scene and he goes, the one you've been waiting for, the Messiah, the one who's going to give us freedom, the one who's going to release us from the, the, the bonds and the chains that lead to death is here. He's coming. He comes behind me. And what's he saying? He says, get it right. Turn your hearts to God. Stop focusing on yourself. Stop focusing on the circumstances and all the irrelevant stuff. And stop focusing on your man-made duties and ways to try to make yourself right before God. I'm telling you, the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is here. I baptize with water, which, you know, it's good, but he's going to baptize the Holy Spirit. You're going to be made right before God. You're going to be made right with God. This is the game changer we've been waiting for. The Messiah is on his way. The first prophecy in 400 years, John announces it, and then boom, the next thing we see quickly, <laughs> immediately we see him being baptized by John, and then listen to what happens, right? Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love and I am well pleased. You had the introduction by John. He led the way for it. Then you had the announcement by the father himself with all heaven opening up. And he says, this is it. If, you, if, if John's word wasn't enough, let me just tell you, here I am, the holy God. I open up and I tell you, this is him. This is me right now in the flesh. I'm here to put an end to all of this and bring salvation to my people and all those that call me Lord, right? That's, that's, that's the story. That's what's going on right there. Put your confidence in him. Trust him for he is God. And then literally the next sentence, we see Satan show up, draw him into the desert and tempt him for 40 days. Oh, he passes the temptation, and we find in other parts of Scripture, in Matthew and Luke, that how does he pass through that temptation? It's brutal. He's brutal. The temptation is brutal for 40 days. How does he pass through it? With the Word of God. Because he knows the Word of God. Because he knows the promises of God. He is literally taking the Word of God, his Word, he's taking it, and every time Satan seeks to tempt him, every time Satan seeks to derail what's happening, every time Satan seeks to derail the mission that he's on, he takes the Word of God and points it right back at Satan and says, you're done. You're done. That is so true with us. Please, you have to know. You have to hear my cry right now. That is true with us. Every time we make those gains, every time we take those steps forward in a relationship with Christ, you can be absolutely sure, 100% sure, that Satan will be at the front door, at the back door, waiting to take your knees right out. He does not want you to be influential in anybody's life. The casual Christian, the one who's just not growing or doesn't really care very much, who just wants to sit and show up, oh, he's not attacking that person. You're no threat to the kingdom, to his kingdom. The one who has been called out by God to follow him and is living an obedient life, oh, look out, for the attack is on. But the attack doesn't have to get you. The attack doesn't have to tear you down. The attack doesn't have to defeat you because you are armed with the word of God. You are armed with the word of God and Satan has no answer, has no authority over the word of God. And so we need to be in the word of God every single day. Learning and growing in what it says because the attack is coming and we have to know who our God is, what he has to say to us. 
We've challenged you as we're going through the book of Mark to study it with us, to go through it with us, to learn more about it. I got this, I got this great commentary. It literally just tears down uh, the, the book in, in real simple terms of this chapter and this verse and this and that by Warren's Wiersbe. And uh, I just want, I want two people to have that. Who wants a commentary about, about Mark? There you go. Pass that down over there. There you go. Who wants it on this side? Who wants a commentary about Mark? There you go. We'll get you another one. All right. Now I got a Bible study, right? You're like, hey, that's good. Well, now it needs to get personal. Now we're going to learn some things. It needs to get personal. So we're going to do a study, a Bible study by John MacArthur. You're going to ask yourself some questions. You're going to take literally each person and go, hey, I wonder how I apply that to my life. I wonder how I can best live that out in my life. I wonder how I can share it with somebody else. That's a Bible study. And you're going to go through that. Who wants a Bible study from John MacArthur? Perfect. You got it. There you go. How about on this side? Who wants a Bible study over here? All right. I got a bad knee. All right. Here we go. I'm coming. I'm coming. All right, and then here we go. Then we, got, then we got a Tim Keller, amazing pastor, an amazing teacher of the Word of God. And what he does is he just, he goes through it and he takes bigger chunks, but he writes all about them. He just expands the thought and how we would apply it into our lives. So I got two from Tim Keller. Who wants one over here? Tim, all right, that's a big hand right there. It flew up in the air like crazy. All right, how about over here? Who wants one over here? There you go. All right, there you go. So now why did I do that? Look. You guys can all afford those books. You can click Amazon just like I did. That's, they showed up at my house. I clicked it. I don't know. Because I want you to know how much it matters. I want you to see how important it is. I want you to have tools in your hand. We do 100,000 things a day, except get into the Word of God, which is the only defense we have against the spiritual battle that faces us, which is the only one that can truly cripple us. Be in the Word every day. Be relentless about it. Study it. We got to go. Here it is. So then we move on, and, and then Jesus begins his ministry, and then we see the call. We see the call for the first disciples, and it says, Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. We see that there is not a call to just believe, right? There's no call like that. There is no call like that in Scripture to just believe. Satan believes... All sorts of entities believe that it's different than that. It is, you receive the message, you do believe the message. Because you believe the message, you repent from your sins and walking as you being God of your own life. And as you repent, you surrender your life and then you follow. That's what it means to receive the gift and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christ one. That's what it means to be one of his disciples, right? You, you, you repent... Right? You receive, you repent, right? you surrender my life, and you follow. That's the only call offered to the disciple. There's not another call. As much as we wish there was a call just to be kind of a, uh, you know, we, gotta, we can't be too crazy about this Jesus stuff, Tim. <laughs> Sorry, that's the only call. I, I wish there was a different call, but there's not. All in, fully surrendered, following wherever he asks us to go. Whenever he asks us to do it. Oh, right? But then it's on. He's teaching. He's healing. He's demonstrating all these things. And the attacks begin. You know, you would think the attacks would begin by the Gentiles. You think the attacks would begin by people who uh, just, you know, uh, they're at war with Jesus maybe or whatever. The attacks began by the very ones waiting for the Messiah. The very spiritual leaders of that time, the pastors and the, and the clergy of that time, began to fight against Jesus because they were going to lose their authority, they were going to lose their influence. It was being taken out of their hands. 
and put in the hands of God and God alone that Jesus Christ would bring salvation through faith and grace, not by our works. So here's what Jesus begins to do. He forgives sins. Mark 2, 5 through 11, when Jesus saw their faith, he had he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Remember, that's the one where the, the four friends had their friend on a rope and the crowds were all around Jesus and they dug a hole in the roof. They lowered him down and they had faith. And here's what they knew. They knew that I had to get my friend in front of Jesus. I had to get my friend in front of Jesus. And remember that week we said, here's the question. Who's on your rope? Because your life has been changed. Your life has been transformed. You are a follower of Jesus Christ. So who's on your rope? Who do you have to take before Jesus? And you will stop at nothing to get that person before Jesus. That your faith will carry them when they don't have enough faith to go themselves. And you will just be the one who constantly takes this person, this, this individual, and place them before the grace and mercy seat of God. Who's on your rope? Who's on your rope? We see that after he forgives sins, he has the power. And who has the power to forgive sins? Only God alone. We see that he calls Levi to be one of, his, one of his followers, one of his disciples. Levi, what's the big deal about that? He's a Jewish tax collector. He's literally a traitor. He's robbing from his own people. The Pharisees are like, are you nuts? You're, you're calling that guy? Yeah, that's what I'm calling. Oh, and then he comes up with this. Jesus had the coolest things to say, I'll tell you. He said, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call the righteous. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Can I say it again? There's no checkmates in the kingdom of God. Stop looking past people. Stop saying, oh, they don't want to hear about it. They, they would never give their lives to Christ. They wouldn't want to follow Jesus. I've known them. I know their past. No, don't do it. No checkmates. None. None. And then they're walking along the road and he, the, his disciples start to grab wheat. They're hungry. But it's the Sabbath. And so the religious leaders come to him and go, how can you let your, your people eat? Your disciples, how you call them disciples? You call yourself a teacher. You call yourself a man of the word. And yet you're letting your people eat. It's like they're starving. Are you nuts? Of course they're supposed to eat. Yeah, but that's work on the Sabbath. He goes, you got it all wrong. The Sabbath was never meant, was never meant for your rules. The Sabbath was, was never meant for you to have all sorts of legalism attached to it. The Sabbath was so that you would remember the power and the majesty and the greatness of God. That you would have a day in the chaos of all of this to center up and get back to true north. God is God and we are not. And so you take your hand off the plow. You take your hand off the things that we control, right? Because we all have the plates and we're just spinning them. And we can, we, can, we can do, we can do, we can make it all work. We can make it all work. And then we get to the Sabbath and we're like, God, I can't. I, and we stop and we let him be in control, fully in control. And we trust him that when we, we wake up the next day, he's got us. He's got this. We lay our worries, we lay our cares, we lay our anxiety. We worship him, a day set apart, fully devoted to him. He said, you got it so backwards. You spend all day working not to work. You spend all day patting yourselves on the back. You spend all day thinking about how you're in so control of this day. You've missed it all. How about the Sabbath? Have you missed it? Or is it a part of your life? A day to rest. To call God the great and mighty God. To remember, he is God and we are not. 
Okay. And then his ministry expands. The crowds keep coming. Remember, he's pushed out of houses. He has to get in boats to talk. It's, ooh, it's mayhem all over the place. And he continues to heal. He continues to teach with great authority. And then he calls his 12 apostles out of the crowd of discipleships, right? And he appoints them, literally chooses them to be apostles. The lot of a disciple is to imitate the teacher. Not sure why there's a question mark there. No question mark. You read that question mark. It is a statement. The lot of a disciple is to imitate the teacher. Jesus came. He took the message to us where we needed it most. He entered into the toughest places of our lives. He did not sit still. And he never expects his disciples to sit idly by as well. He has turned the message over to us. He has sent us out. Apostles means sent out. He has chosen his disciples to follow after him and declare the truth, to be the living example, to be his hands and his feet. And yes, with our words, he was the word that was made flesh and dwelled among us. We are to use our words in the midst of people's lives, declaring the truth of scripture and what he told us. That is what we're called, to follow our teacher. We must go into the world and tell the world, all those we have influence with, about our great God. And finally, after he heals a, 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 a possessed man, the Pharisees come up and go, Hey, you're of Satan. It's like, what are you talking about? You're of Satan. Oh, how can I be of Satan? Right? And he gives this incredible response and rebuttal. He says, listen, if I was of Satan, how is it that I could drive Satan out? Right? Because if I'm on Satan's team then I want more Satan, not less Satan. I want more demons, not less demons. And here I am driving out the demons. Here I am having authority over the evil spirits. How could that be? And then he said this. He said, listen, what you call of Satan that is really from God is blasphemy and a denial of that which is true and right. And for that, there is no forgiveness. What? He's literally saying that at the end of it all, we're all going to have a choice. Is he a, is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Was he just a dude that was possessed? Or was he Lord? If you choose anything other than Lord, you're choosing to deny that which is of God and from God. You're choosing to say no to God and yes to any other philosophy or principle. You do that for the whole of your life, every person will stand before God. And based upon what you believed and responded to in this life will be your reward for the coming, right? And what will happen at the judgment seat is Jesus will look and he'll say, you said no. You said you didn't want me. You said I was a liar. You said I was a lunatic. I don't know you, so I'll give you the desire of your heart to not have me. And that is where eternity will lie. Everyone makes a choice. You're going to make a choice. I'm going to make a choice. Let's make it on this side of eternity to choose him as Lord. We have no other evidence. 
have no other, we have no other reasonable response to who he is and what he's done. The soils. Then we move into the parables. He starts talking parables, and his parables were literally a judgment for all the accusations, for the disbelief of the Pharisees. It was literally a judgment upon the disbelief of the people that were supposed to be believing in him. He says, fine. You don't want to hear what I have to say? Fine. You just want to argue and pick apart everything I'm saying? Then I will bring judgment right now, and I will begin to speak to you in a way that you won't understand, but all those who want to follow me will, and I will explain it to anyone who wants to know. And so he began to speak in parables. And we start to see the very first parable is the parable of the soil. Let me just remind you what that one was about that Turner talked to us about. It says, some people reject the gospel as soon as they hear it. Jesus compared their hardness of heart to the impenetrable pavement-like soil by the rocky road. Others respond with superficial exuberance. When times of hardship and persecution arise, the initial emotion fades away and they fall away. The Lord likens such individuals to shallow, rocky ground in which true faith never takes root. A third type of soil also looks good on the surface, but is actually infested with thorns. The people in this category also react to the gospel with initial interest. But the cares of the world and the pursuits of riches, like suffocating weeds, choke out the genuine love for Christ. By contrast, only one type of soil Jesus was focusing on. By contrast, the good soil represents those who embrace the gospel, bear verified amounts of fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold. When we believe in the gospel, when the gospel begins to transform our lives, there will be a product that comes out. There will be a change in our lives. People will see it. We'll respond differently. We'll act differently. Things will matter differently to us. The way we treat people will, will be different. The hope that we have for, in this life will be different. Our anxiety level will be different. Our joy will be different. Our peace will be different. All of those things will be tra being transformed in our lives. It'll be different. There will be fruit that comes from the seed that's growing in us because we have fertile soil. But there's more than just that. There's a response from those who have received this incredible gift. Let me ask you something. Is it not that the gift of salvation, the gift of grace, the gift of God's love, is that not the best gift that we've ever received? Can you think of something greater? Can you think of something more magnificent than that? So question for you. Why do we talk about our new car or our new opportunities more than we talk about Jesus? Why do we talk about our vacation destination or what we just accomplished more than we talk about Jesus? So Jesus gives a parable. He says, if this is really growing up, if this is growing up in you, if you are that fertile soil and the seed and the fruit of a relationship with Jesus Christ is growing up in you, then you are to be like a lamp and you don't put a, 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 a covering on a lamp because it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Instead, you put it on a stand so it lights the whole house. That is supposed to be who we are. What is your response to this fruit that's growing up in you? Go and tell. Let everybody know. Let everybody know this great, amazing, outrageous news that you have been saved. You have been restored. The God of great restoration has restored you. And you now have the family of God that you're a part of and a soul that has been transformed and you are a son or daughter of the great God and he wants you as well. That's our message. It's available to you. Have you heard of anything greater than that? I sure haven't. And then what does it say will happen? It says that there will be a return 60, 80, 100 fold. It says if you hold back, 
Count on the fact that there will be and no return. But if you give out, God will do something far greater than you could ever imagine with what you give out. Which brings us to the next one, seeds and sleep. It says, he also said this. This is what the kingdom of God's like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day. Whether he sleeps or gets up, the, the seed supports and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk and the head and the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. What's this parable saying? It's saying, first of all, let your lamp shine. Cast the seed. Give people the gospel. Tell people the truth about who Jesus is. And then it's saying, let it rest. God does all the work. It's not up to you. Can I just say something as a pastor? I don't often just say, hey, I want to sit as a pastor up here and say something to you. But I want to do it today. Been in ministry for over 27 years. I just got to tell you, I'm tired of something. And I hope it's not offensive. I hope you don't find offense to it. But I'm tired of something. I'm tired of faithful following believers of Christ telling me what they can't do. About how they're not the right ones to share. About they don't talk well enough. About they don't, you know, they're not one of those teachers or preachers. They're not an evangelist. What if I mess it up? If I say something, I'll mess it up. It's just nobody knows the faith that's transformed your life better than you. Nobody, nobody can tell the story of what God has done in your life better than you. There's nobody. I can't tell it. Billy Graham couldn't tell it. It doesn't matter who it was. Nobody can tell the story of what Jesus Christ has done in your life better than you. You're supposed to put that lamp out there and let it shine and stop covering it up. And you don't have to worry about the results because the results aren't up to you. They're up to God. He grows it. You are just supposed to cast the seed. That's the people we're supposed to be. Casting the seed. And we take great confidence that it's him. And then here's what happens. The mustard seed, right? It says, what shall we say about the kingdom of God? What parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seeds on earth. Uh, when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Yet, the conversation might start out small with you. Yes, your influence might seem small and insignificant. Yes, you might not have all the grandest words or the, 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 the most articulate way to say something. Yes, when I think about how I used to share the gospel today compared to how I shared it when I was new in my faith, yes, it's totally different. It might start small, but because of the work God does, it turns into this vast kingdom. Your influence becomes a hundredfold because you have simply offered yourself. When God does the work, he expands it far greater than you can ever imagine. It started out with Jesus in a manger, and now hundreds upon millions of hundreds of millions have given their life to Christ you are the faithful church. Go and share. Let God do the work and watch what he grows because it will blow your imagination and mind because it's far greater than what you could have ever thought or hoped for. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, and Jesus is getting right to it. And then finally, he wraps up in, in Mark, the rest of four and, and in five, and he he shows his power and authority all over again. He calms a powerful storm. He, he casts out a legion of demons, some 2,000 demons. And he heals, he heals an incurably sick woman. And he raises from the dead a girl. Who would you rather put your trust in? A God who does that? We follow him because that's what he's called. 
We follow him because he was truly God. We follow him because there's no greater power and authority. We follow him because he chose us to do the work of his kingdom. And we trust him for what that's going to be. No matter if it makes sense or it doesn't, no matter if we have a fear or we don't. And watch the kingdom that he is building. You're a part of it. And he wants others to be a part of it as well. Go share. Go share it. Father, thank you for this great church. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how it impacts our life. And Lord, thank you for the influence that you have in our lives and others have in our lives and the way you're raising us up and growing us. Father, help us to be the followers you've asked us to be. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.